Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. You know, when we walk in the Spirit, we sometimes encounter obstacles and difficulties that can be quite disheartening and discouraging and distressing. It's wonderful when we're walking and the walk is good, but sometimes hurdles come along the way. The Bible tells us that a just man falleth seven times. And it's at those times when we are down that getting up can sometimes be a challenge because the devil rushes in and tries to keep us and hold us down. Isn't that right? So today I want to talk about uh, the work of Christ as our intercessor and uh, encourage us to be able to get up and to continue walking in the spirit. We don't progress much when we are down. You need to be up to be walking. But sometimes, from time to time, we do fall down. I don't need to ask for a show of hands. I think we all can put our hands up. But uh, we can stay down for a while or we can get up again. And like I said, the challenge and the difficulty is the devil loves it when we are down. He has a lot to do with getting us down and trying to keep us down. So we're going to look at the great controversy. That's the theme I want us to think on as, as we're uh, talking today. And looking at the great controversy, it's very important to understand that there are uh, legal aspects to the great controversy that are important for us to understand. There are rules to the game, so to speak. And since we are involved in the great controversy, whether we like it or not, it helps us a great deal when we understand the rules of the game. We can actually play the game better, so to speak. And I'm not saying that lightly. We can actually engage in the battle more intelligently and successfully when we understand certain legalities and certain jurisdictions and certain rules that the great controversy is operating with. You see, God understands the rules. The devil understands the rules. And it helps us a great deal to understand these different aspects. So we're going to be looking at a few aspects regarding uh, this particular point today and hopefully by God's grace that will help us for that time or those times when we are down that we can get up again and in looking at uh, Christ as our intercessor it's important to understand what that really means and this is what I want to explore a little bit today that Christ is our intercessor we believe that he right now is interceding on our behalf last time we spoke about him being our high priest not only in heaven in the heavenly sanctuary but also being the high priest of this temple. We want to explore the aspect of him being our intercessor today. And uh, we'll start at the beginning. Let's go to Genesis 1.26. So we'll start in a verse that's been used repeatedly during this camp, Genesis 1.26. And there's one particular aspect I want to focus on in regards to this great controversy that we want to explore. Genesis 1.26, the Bible talks about the creation of man. And it says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Key word here I want us to focus on is that God intended for man to have something called dominion. Now what does dominion mean? Power, right, control, authority. Rulership, these are all very good definitions for dominion. 
This was God's intention. And it's beautiful because we see a principle in Genesis, whatever God intends, he often reveals. Not only did he intend that in speaking to his son in this particular verse, in this conference that he and his son had alone with no other intruders, he said, let us make man and let us give him dominion. And then in verse 28, we see God revealing his plan. Just to skip a verse, verse 28 says, And God blessed them, speaking now to man. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So God intends and God reveals his intention to man. God wanted man to have dominion, to have control. And so we see that when God was speaking to Adam, he gave him power of rulership and authority on this kingdom, a dominion. This kingdom was this earth. And when God was speaking to Adam, it's important to keep in mind that God was speaking to the entire human race, not just to Adam as a person solitarily. The entire human race was made up there in Adam. And, and we see that in the scriptures because the Bible says that uh, God, uh, let's, let's look at it in Genesis chapter 5. This is just to establish something here that's of significance. Because Adam was really the representative of the whole human race. And Genesis 5, 2, it tells us that Adam was not only the name of the first man, but also the name of the whole race. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. So Adam here is the name of who? All the human beings that were present at the time, which was the man and his wife. And of course, it's also the proper name of the first man because he was the first human being. But it's important to keep in mind that it's also the name of the whole race. So when God was speaking to Adam, he was speaking the whole race. When God gave Adam dominion, he gave humanity dominion and rulership and authority on this earth. Now, this dominion, this, dominion, this authority and rulership was given to man under God. Man was not made an independent ruler of the earth. Man was to rule under God. God was still the king of the universe. God still had supreme unbounded authority, but man was made as a vice regent to rule the earth under God. And Adam, of course, the first man was the representative in this situation. The sad thing is that Adam fell. And when Adam fell, we all fell. Just as when Adam was blessed, we were all blessed. When Adam was given dominion, we're all given dominion. When he fell, we all fell. In 2 Peter chapter 2, if you turn with me there, we're given here an insight as to what happened when the fall took place. And this is an area I want us to think on a little. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. 2 Peter 2 verse 19 gives us a principle that we want to apply to the fall of Adam. 2 Peter 2.19 says, While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. Man was overcome by who? By Satan. Therefore, he was brought in bondage to Satan. What a tragedy. What does bondage mean? Slavery. Absence of freedom, isn't that right? 
And Romans tells us, to whom you yield your servants to obey, his servants here are, to whom you obey. Adam had become a servant. Adam had become a slave. He was in bondage to him who overcame him. Now, of course, Satan, through deception, overcame Adam. Satan accomplished this sad situation. But something happened now to the dominion, and this is the area we want to focus on a little bit. The dominion that was given to Adam, that was entrusted to Adam, because now he had been overcome, the conqueror takes over that which belonged to him, and that is his dominion. So that dominion now has passed into the hands of Satan. He has usurped the dominion that was given to Adam. Not only that, but also the right of Adam being the representative of the race now suddenly passed to Satan because of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. What a tragedy for the human race. You can just picture heaven looking down and this legal or illegal, this deceptive transaction, and now with one act, Satan captures dominion of the earth. That was a very significant event. And the human race, as a result of this sin, had the unenviable position of Satan now being the new master. That's a horrible tragedy. Now, that sounds really, really shocking to say, but let's have a look at Luke chapter 4 and see how this situation is brought out. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4 is Christ in the wilderness. And verses 5 and 6, we will be reading from verse 5. Luke 4 verse 5 says, And the devil taking him, that's Christ, up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I Give it. Interesting. The devil says to Christ, all these things have been what? Delivered unto me. Was that true or false? True. How were they delivered unto him? When Adam fell, he delivered to Satan that which was his, the dominion. But always Satan likes to take a truth and stretch it to a point beyond its application. And while it is true that it was delivered to him, and then he adds, to whomsoever will, I will, I give it. Now, was that true? Not at all. Because remember, Adam's rule was not independent. Adam could not just do whatever he wanted with the earth. His rule was under God. And even in the same way, Satan's usurpation of that dominion means he still has to operate under God. But there is a measure of dominion that he has. There is a measure there that he can operate in. And heaven recognizes that. Now, that's important for us to understand. Heaven recognized that particular fact. Satan can only exercise his usurped authority as God permits. And God does permit because there are rules to the game. There are rules in this great controversy. And this is why in the Bible it tells us in 2 Corinthians, let's there, turn there because we're going to see a connection here. 2 uh, Corinthians 
The tragic story of the fall of man. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Can you imagine how Satan and his ranks rejoiced when Adam decided to eat from that fruit? Because they weren't having much luck with any other world, huh? Until they came here and Adam ate and said, yes, now we have a foothold. Now we have a place where we have dominion and according to God's laws and according to God's uh, you know, rules, heaven will recognize this as our dominion. And we see that brought out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Who's the God of this world? Isn't that a tragedy? You know, all the, all the worlds out there in the universe, all the different planets, they all have as their God, the ruler of the universe, the Father, the true God. And when it comes to planet Earth, our God is... The God of this world. What a tragedy. This is a situation that we had. How did Satan become the God of this world? It was when the representative and the head of this world passed on to him that right that God had entrusted to him. This was a tragedy. And the dominion that uh, Satan gained, he wanted to make the most of. But notice the connection here that this verse brings out. It says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. There is a connection here. Because what happened on a large scale to the whole world, where Satan stole dominion from Adam, is also a picture of what happened up here in the mind of man. You realize that? We are talking the other day about the physical and the spiritual, and how that the lights on the inside go out and then on the outside. You see what happened in the world on a big scale and how Satan gained dominion over the world is also on a small scale a picture of what happened in man's mind. Every human being's mind, beginning with Adam, of course. God had given man dominion to rule under him, right here, isn't that right? In harmony with God. And we're told that when Adam fell, the one main thing that he lost, we're told in spirit prophecy, who remembers? What is it that he lost? He lost self-control. He could no longer now rule this dominion. That rulership now he had passed on to someone else. We cannot miss that connection. And Satan rejoiced to have this new dominion where he has a foothold in the mind. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, I just want to explore that a little bit because I don't want to confuse you too much because there is a picture, a parallel here that's very significant. When God created Adam and Eve, God created Adam and Eve free moral agents. Isn't that right? In other words, even though God was the ruler, they had freedom to rule their dominion in harmony with him, or if they chose, they could rebel. God did not hold the reins where they could not choose any other way. But the shocking fact is that when Satan usurped this dominion, his rule does not allow freedom of choice. You think Satan wants people to go choose someone else? No, because he knows how bad he really is. And so, 
Now man was in this dilemma where he had come under slavery to Satan and there was no way out. But the beautiful thing is God said, no, my universe runs on free choice. And God gave to man still the power to choose another, server, uh, another master if he wants. He can choose to relinquish the dominion of Satan up here. This is the battle that we tussle with. That's a battle that we have each and every one in the mind. But that's just something to keep in mind that when we're talking about what's happening in the world, we don't want to miss the fact that this is a picture of what took place here and what is still taking place here. So now that we have the situation where the representative of the earth is Satan. And Satan very quickly wanted to make that very well known to everyone. Now I want us to take, go back in our minds a little bit earlier. We'll backtrack a little bit now. And you recall that when Satan was cast out of heaven after the rebellion, him and his angels, he lost certain rights and privileges. We're told that Lucifer in heaven, his position in heaven was what? Who remembers? A covering cherub, or a covering cherub. That's how the Hebrew says it. And uh, he had a certain right, he had a certain privilege in heaven. He had a position that God had assigned him. When he lost that, when he was cast out of heaven, him and his angels, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think very carefully about this question. Could he re-enter heaven again after he was cast out? Okay, we have yes and we have no. And generally, that's the answer we get when, I, when we ask this question, yes or no. But we have to understand something. The answer is actually no. When Lucifer was cast out of heaven, that act deprived him permanently of any access into the kingdom. As a matter of fact, if you remember reading the Spirit of Prophecy, when Satan realized that he was out, he said, hold on, hold on a minute. I want to talk with Christ. And he requested an interview with Christ. You remember that? Some of you might remember that. And Christ actually, we're told, came outside to have an interview with Satan. Where Satan said, look, let's, let's try and work out a deal. You see, he did not expect that he would end up where he did. He was not truly repentant for his rebellion. He was sorry that he had lost the rights and privileges that he had. And Christ wept in that, uh, in that interview and, and said, no, he could not allow rebellion to re-enter heaven. I want to read to you a statement first through prophecy. I want you to think carefully because we'll see something that develops here. And uh, your answers are all right. It just depends on when. Anyway, here's what it says in this statement. Spirit Prophecy, Volume 1, page 30. It says, God knew that such determined rebellion would not remain inactive. That's Lucifer's rebellion. Satan would invent means to annoy the heavenly angels and show contempt for his authority. As he could not gain admission within the gates of heaven, he would wait just at the entrance to taunt the angels and seek contention with them as they went in and out. Did you catch that? He could not have access within the gates of heaven, so he would come as, as close as he could, and he would annoy and he would taunt the angels as they went in and, and out. Isn't that interesting? And you just imagine Lucifer would come up to the gate, and the, the gatekeeping angel would say, okay, to hear and no further, because he had lost that right, he had lost that privilege, he had lost his place in heaven. But of course, all those of you who answered and said, yes, he could go back to heaven, you're probably thinking of the story of Job and where Satan was in heaven. Well, what happened between Satan being cast out of heaven 
and him losing that right and privilege where he could gain no access back in. And then we see in the story of Job that we're all thinking of where he goes back in. What happened is Adam fell. And when Adam fell, he gave back to Lucifer a right and a reason where he could enter heaven again, not as a covering cherub, but as the representative of the dominion that he had just captured. So let's go to the book of Job and see exactly how that also is brought out because it's important to see that transition and to understand what is the right that Satan has when he is in heaven. It makes a great difference. But you with me so far? So we see a transition here, Job chapter 1. And this tragic, tragic fact here that we have. There was a meeting in heaven, Job chapter 1, we'll read verse 6 and 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. So I want you to just picture that here. Here is a meeting, a council in heaven where all the sons of God are there. And the sons of God there would refer to the angels, of course, and any others who uh, are considered, you know, all the creatures that God made in his, uh, in his image to have moral intelligence are considered sons of God. They're made in his image to be his dwelling place. Here is this meeting. And in this meeting, where the sons of God are there, Satan comes in among them. And the Lord asks him a question. And of course, the Lord asks him this question not, not because he doesn't know the answer. This is written for our benefit. You understand that? And God says to Satan, what are you doing here? Isn't that right? You're not supposed to be here. That's the implication. Who was supposed to fill that position? It was Adam, who would come as the son of God, as the representative of the human race, when there was a council, when there was a meeting, where all the different representatives would be there, Adam would go representing us. And where Adam should have been, there is Satan. And that's exactly what Satan's answer was. When God says, where did you come from? Satan says, well, I came from the earth. Don't you know that they have chosen me? as their new representative. And you know the beautiful thing about this? Is that God recognizes these rules. God doesn't tell Satan, no, no, get out. This is not on. He stays there in the meeting. God recognizes the fact that Satan has indeed gained something. And God works and plays with the same rules, or he plays the same uh, rules in the game. But picture this tragedy that happened. When Adam fell, Satan comes up to the gate of heaven and the gatekeeping angel can no longer say, sorry to hear no more. He has to open the door. And Lucifer saunters right in, out of my way, straight into the very presence of, of God. He has just stolen that right. What a tragedy. And all the angels, how sorry they must have felt. Here is bad news coming. Oh, no, here he comes again. We have to open the door. That's really what was happening. That was taking place. And uh, Satan would come in there, and the whole purpose of his visits to heaven was to cause as much trouble as he could for those that he represented. Isn't that right? 
We see that clearly in the story of Job. He starts accusing the man, and he, uh, he causes all this trouble and all this heartache to happen to poor old Job. And Job becomes a, a proverbial example of one who experiences great heartache and trouble. You know, in, in Arabic, we have, we have a saying when, about uh, being patient and enduring, and uh, it has to do with Job. We say, oh, for the patience of Job. That's an expression. He endured great heartache. All that was the work of this representative. So we see Satan working as an accuser and as a troublemaker for those that he represents. That's a horrible tragedy that we are in. How is God going to reverse that and undo that? By the rules. That's the beautiful thing about it. Let's look at a few examples of Satan doing this work. Uh, now, you remember in the story of Job, it gives us an illustration that Satan's rule on earth is not an unlimited do-whatever-you-want rule because Satan had to get permission from God before he could do certain things. And it's only as God permitted, he told Satan, well, here is the limits to here and no further. Isn't that right? And then Satan goes again and presents his case again. And then God says, okay, to here and no further. You see, God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Satan can only exercise his authority as God permits. Praise God for that. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be here today. So keep that in mind. I don't want to, you know, the, the picture is bleak, but God is still sitting on the throne of the universe, okay? Let's go look at another example of the work of this usurper, Ahab, in uh, First Kings. King Ahab, First Kings chapter 22. Let's turn there. I'll just give you a little background. First Kings chapter 22. Here is another day where another story happens. 1 Kings chapter 22. Before we read, I just want to give you a little background to this story just so we can see it in its context. 1 Kings 22, we have the story of King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Ahab was, and Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, southern kingdom. And they, they meet together, and Ahab gives uh, Jehoshaphat a proposal. Ahab wants some help in uh, trying to regain his border town of Ramoth Gilead from the Assyrians. So he says to Jehoshaphat, listen, do you want to come with me to the battle? And Ahab, of course, uh, says, well, my men are as your men, my horses are your horses. Yes, we will be with you in the battle. And then Ahab kind of uh, gave a commitment before he thought about it too much. And then he said, oh, hold on a minute. Is there a prophet of God around here? Maybe we should check and see what God's counsel is on, on, this, on this plan. And Ahab said, sure, look, we're all these prophets over here. It's 400 prophets here. And they all were on his payroll, of course, so they made sure they said what he wanted to hear. And they said, go ahead. And, and Ahab, Jehoshaphat was a man of God, so he could see that these false prophets were, were just, you know, saying what they were supposed to say. So he told Ahab, look, isn't there, a, isn't there a true prophet of God here? And you remember Ahab's answer? He said, there is a man, Micaiah, but I hate him. There's another sermon there. Because he always prophesies evil against me. And so Joshua convinced Ahab, said, look, don't, don't say that. Let, let's get the man. Let's hear what God has to say. So they bring the man. They bring Micaiah. And this is the scene here we're about to read. Micaiah is relaying a vision that he has seen. And that's the focus. We want to see what occurred in this vision. Verses 19 down to 23. This is Micaiah, the prophet, the true prophet of God speaking. Verse 19. And he said, hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. 
I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. You know, this is a puzzling story. I get a lot of questions about that, that particular story. How did the Lord do that? Why would the Lord send a lying spirit? I thought the Lord's spirit is called the spirit of truth. Who or what is this lying spirit? This was none other than a, a meeting where, again, that lying spirit that had usurped dominion had gone up to heaven to cause more mischief and trouble. And in this particular case, it was over the king of Israel, King Ahab. And uh, you can just picture the scene again. Here comes Satan again, and the gatekeeping angel opens the door, and Satan walks right in and claims Ahab. He says, Ahab is not listening to you. Give him into my hand. That's really what was taking place. That lying spirit that came forth and stood before the Lord was Lucifer. And all those, the host, when it says all the host of heaven stood on the right hand and on the left hand of the Lord, who is all the host of heaven? It's all the holy angels, isn't that right? So right into that gathering, right into that presence, Satan is making the most of that which he has gained from Adam, and he keeps going up there to cause trouble for mankind. And God says, okay, he's not listening to my promptings. You can do what you want. And sure enough, Ahab did not heed the warning of the Lord. He went into that battle, and he died in that battle. And he died because of the work of Satan. That's the work of the accuser, that's the work of the new representative. And this helps us understand also what the Bible talks about when it says in the New Testament that those who do not love the truth, the Bible tells us that God shall send them a strong delusion. You know, many people are puzzled by that. Well, why would God send a delusion to anyone? All that means is God will permit them to believe a lie because they are not interested in the truth. Just as God permits Satan to work on those who do not heed his warnings and his promptings. So we see the work and examples of the work of Satan. Let's go quickly look at another one, Zechariah chapter 3. There's quite a few, but I just want us to see a, the picture, the, the sad, bleak picture of this representative at work because it will actually help us appreciate the new representative in his work, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, we have the story of Joshua the high priest, the vision that uh, Zechariah saw, verses 1 to 3. And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. So in this vision we have a very graphic illustration of the work that God intends to do for mankind and the work of the representative. Satan, standing to resist. Satan's work is to accuse, is to deceive, and is to resist whatever blessing God intends to throw our way. 
And the argument that he uses to resist these blessings is that Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. What's that represent? He's a sinner. He's a dirty sinner. And as a sinner, he belongs to me and not to you, and you have no right giving him a blessing. Isn't that right? That's what Satan's work is. He tries to present our case in as hopeless light as possible so that God might give up on us. That's his work day in and day out. And it's important to keep something in mind. Satan was doing that work not only in heaven, but Satan does this work also here, remember? We, there's a connection there that we don't want to miss. And of course, the beautiful answer that the Lord gives him is the Lord rebuked him. And God does bless Joshua. He removes the filthy garments from him and he gives him clean garments. What and how could God do that? How were the rules and laws that, that God used and followed to get to that point? You see, Satan's work is continuous up until today. And we still feel and hear the accusations of the enemy in our ears. Maybe not in a, in a voice that we can actually hear audibly, but the accusations. Satan constantly is presenting our guilt, our defilement, our shortcomings, our failures as reason why we shouldn't bother to get up again. Isn't that right? He says, you are a miserable sinner. Look at you. You think you're a Christian? Look, at you. if you're a Christian, you wouldn't really do that. That's the work of the accuser. And his work is designed to resist whatever blessing that the Lord wants to send our way. We see that very clearly in this example by pointing out the faults and the failures. Let's look at another one. Jude chapter 1. Jude chapter 1. Just before Revelation, Jude chapter 1. Short verse. I think we all know this story. But let's read it quickly. Verse 9. Jude verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses and durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Michael, the archangel, is none other than Christ. Here we have a situation where there is a contention with the devil, Christ and the devil. And the object of contention is the body of Moses. So you can just picture the scene. Here Christ comes down, because where was the body of Moses? in the grave, wherever he was buried, on the mountain. And Christ comes down with a purpose in mind. What's his purpose? To raise Moses. Satan gets wind of it. He rushes to the scene and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you think you're doing? This man is a sinner. He belongs to me. And you said the wages of sin is death. You have no right to resurrect him. That was the contention. And Michael turns to, Christ turns to the devil and he rebukes him. Same thing he did as he did with Joshua. Well, Joshua's later, of course. But he said, the Lord rebuked thee. And then he goes on to resurrect Moses. I don't want you to miss the import of this occasion. This event is the first time ever in the entire history of the universe where someone was going to be brought back from the dead. You realize that? Up until that point, Satan had always felt and believed that all those who passed into the grave went into a dead-end street. There is no coming back. And now Christ comes to bring back one, the first human to be raised. Moses has that uh, position. And the devil now, trembling, comes and says, Oh, hold on a minute. This is not on. 
what do you think you're doing? And Christ rebukes Satan, and he pulls Moses out of the grave. He resurrects him. We know that because Moses is in heaven. He appeared to encourage Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Satan there, right then and there, saw a very, very big problem that was coming. That his prison house is not as secure as he thought it was. Amen. Amen. And so Moses has this uh, particular uh, honor of being the first to be reclaimed from, from the grave. So that's the importance of this scene. You know, many times we miss that. And we read, oh, yes, when Christ raised Moses, Michael and, and the devil contended. It was a very, very important precedent. That Jesus saying, what I'm doing here, I'm going to do again. For many more who are in that prison house. The devil recognized that. But his work was trying to resist and stop this blessing. But on what basis, what was the right that Christ had to raise Moses from the dead? Moses had indeed passed into the dominion of Satan. The Bible does say the wages of sin is death. And there are rules to the game. And up until that point, at that time, Satan was the one who had the dominion. You see, the Bible tells us there's a beautiful promise in Micah. Let's go to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. I really came to love this verse more and more as I understood its meaning. Micah chapter 4. Micah is a little hard to find. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Micah. Just after Jonah, huh? Micah chapter 4 and verse 8. We'll just uh, speed up here a little bit. Micah chapter 4 and verse 8. And notice this promise here, and I want us to see an important word that this verse reveals. Micah chapter 4 and verse 8. The Bible says, and it came to pass. Sorry. Verse 8 says, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. That's a promise that God had made. God said that dominion that Adam had lost is going to be restored. And the way it's going to be restored is through the second Adam. Part of the mission of Christ to come as a second Adam, that's just another reason why he had to come as a man, because it was man who lost the dominion, and so man had to reclaim that dominion, and man had no hope of doing that. So Christ said, I will come, and I will be a man, and I'm going to pull that dominion out of the hand of Satan, legally and legitimately, and I will restore it to my people. And it was on the strength of that promise that Christ resurrected Moses. And did all these things that he did, because this is, I, I will bring that dominion back. And in essence, Christ was, uh, you know, like you would do, uh, you put a deposit on something, and you already own the whole thing, when you haven't really full, uh, paid, full, uh, paid for the whole thing. Yeah, like a down payment, you call it a down payment here, okay? So Christ was, was drawing from the bank, so to speak, because he said, well, here's a down payment. I will come, and I will restore the dominion. So he raises Moses, takes Enoch to heaven, takes Elijah to heaven, and all these things happen. And Satan's, wait, what's going on here? I stole the dominion legally from Adam. And God said, yes, you did. And I'm going to legally restore it again to man. And on that strength of that promise, Christ raised Moses. So Christ's mission was to restore the dominion. So you can just imagine how trembling Satan was when Christ came to earth, because that was showdown. That's when the rest of the payment will be made, 
or it won't be made, thereby forfeiting all the claim that God had made. So there was a lot of weight on Christ's shoulder. Let's go to John chapter 14 now. Look at the mission of Christ in that light, John chapter 14, and see his work when it comes to the dominion. And remember, like we talked last time as well, when Christ restores the dominion, it's not only the dominion of the earth, it also is up here, right? So that man can rightfully rule this dominion under God. That's the whole purpose. But it's being played out on a bigger scale and also on this scale. We, we don't want to miss that. John 14 and verse 30. John 14 and verse 30. Jesus speaking, he says, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Who is the prince of this world? According to Jesus, it is Satan. He recognized the devil as the prince of this world. But the beautiful thing is he said he has nothing in me. Others, he's saying his day is coming. Showdown very soon. I'm going to contest the position of Satan as the prince of this world. That's the mission of Christ. It was a battle. John chapter 16, verse 11. John 16, 11. Just a few pages after, a few chapters after uh, Jesus speaking of the spirit that comes, he says the spirit will come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And in verse 11, he says of judgment because the prince of this world is, is judged. Can you imagine how Satan felt when he heard that? Uh-oh. That's, that's Jesus. It's, that's a battle cry. Prince of this world, your day's coming. You're going to be judged. When was that showdown? When was that event? Let's go to John chapter 12. And it's good to know that Christ recognizes that so that we can also recognize what he accomplished. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. You see, Jesus came to cast out Satan from his usurped position and to regain what Adam had lost. Every last bit of it. And it doesn't uh, all happen at once. There is a process. And the, the process begins with a very important aspect that Satan had gained, that Jesus was going to reclaim again. And that's the aspect of representation. John chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. When does this showdown take place? Jesus tells us, John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. When does he say? He says it is now, the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. What was he referring to? He was. He was referring to the cross. We know that because the very next verse tells us that. Verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto, unto me. Imagine how Satan felt when he heard that. Jesus saying, Now the prince of this world is going to be cast out. He's going to be cast out of that position that he has usurped from Adam. I am going to do that. When that is accomplished, when I am lifted up, the result of that work is I will have a drawing power on all men that will be drawn unto me. Praise God. Because he will be the new prince. That's exactly right. It was at the cross that the death knell of Satan was sounded. And that beautiful promise that was given in Eden was realized at the cross. When the serpent's head was, was crushed. And it was beautiful. That someone pointed out the, the, the symbology, and it's really beautiful, that the place of the skull had a cross in it. The crushing of Satan's head. In Revelation chapter 12, we have an account that 
also gives us an insight as to what happened in heaven when that took place. And I find that incredibly interesting. And for the most part, we actually miss the import of these verses in this context for some reason or another. And I don't want us to miss that today. Revelation chapter 12, if you remember, in Revelation 12, it talks about the woman who is standing on the moon, clothed with the sun, and a crown on her head. And that woman, of course, represents God's people, the faithful, the church. And it says that woman had a child, was, was heavy with child, and she had a child, and the dragon wanted to destroy the child. Let's read uh, verse 5, Revelation 12 and verse 5. It says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who is that child? It's Christ. And right here, it tells us part of his mission. He is to rule. In other words, he is to have dominion. Isn't that right? That's part of his mission. He was to restore that dominion. And then when it says he was caught up to God and to his throne, what's that talking about? When Christ's mission was accomplished... He ascended to heaven, isn't that right? Now something happened in heaven when Christ ascended as a victor, you know, on the cross, he was victorious. When he ascended to heaven, something happened in heaven. And we read about that in the next verses, actually, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Christ accomplished that. You see, most of the time we read this verse and apply it to the war in heaven before the creation of man. And it can have a secondary application in that sense, but the timing of this is very significant. This tells us what happened in heaven as a result of the victory of Christ on the cross. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying, Where? In heaven. Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. And notice the reason. For, that's the evidence that all these things have come. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and, and night. You just imagine all the angels in heaven. These voices would include angels, most assuredly. They're saying, praise God. The accuser who used to come all the time here for 4,000 years, and we have to just watch him come in, and we can do nothing about it, and hear his accusations day and night. Praise God, he is cast out. There is rejoicing in heaven. As a matter of fact, verse 12 tells us that. Therefore rejoice ye... Heavens, and he that dwell in them. Why are they rejoicing? They no longer have to hear this tirade of accusations and misrepresentations day in and day out. You know, it's an amazing picture that it gives us here. The accuser of our brethren, which accused them before God day and night. He had this right that enabled him to go into the very presence of God and do that. The cross terminated that right. What happened was Christ had begun the restoration and he now took back the right of representation. Where the devil now could no longer represent the earth. He still has a measure of dominion, but that's being gradually taken out. Now notice very carefully what it says in verse 12. Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. Why is that? 
For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. The devil has been limited to this earth after the cross. He can no longer go to heaven and accuse God's people. And that makes the devil very angry because he can see his dominion is being taken from him, his so-called dominion. And he knows that that means he has a very short time. But you know, the amazing thing is this. The devil, in doing his work in heaven, is the same. He doesn't change either. That's because God doesn't change, of course. The same work that he does in heaven, he also does on earth. The same work of accusation and misrepresentation and resisting the blessings of God, he does on earth. And the Bible here tells us, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. It's you and me. Isn't that right? The devil is angry. He's, he's like, okay, let's turn up the heat on these guys. Time is running out. And he does turn up the heat. Isn't that right? Many times we have heard these accusations. Sometimes the accusations come through, through our own brothers and our own sisters. Misrepresentations. Fault finding and so on and so forth. All that is the work of the devil that he can no longer do in heaven. So he still tries to carry it out here on earth and tries to discourage us and dishearten us. But I love to picture the scene. You know, in my mind, I, I picture it. And, and the devil goes up there again. And the gatekeeping angel says to him, oh, sorry. <laughs> Access denied. We have a new representative for the human family. Praise God. And so the devil comes down. And, oh, let's take it out on these guys. And he says, a roaring lion, the Bible tells us. So we have to understand what took place. And when we realize that in heaven right now we have a new representative, it's an encouraging thing in the great controversy. That's why we're told to consider often and regularly the high priest and apostle of our profession. We need to consider what Christ has accomplished and what it means that he, sorry, that he is now our intercessor. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. And in, in, the, in contrast to what we have found, I just want us to see the work of Christ in a, in a fresh light, in a glorious light, in contrast to the work that Satan was doing. Hebrews 7, 25, speaking of the new representative and of his work, it says, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What's intercession mean? Anyone? Stand between two persons as a mediator. When someone intercedes for you, what does that mean? They plead on your behalf. They are on your side. Isn't that right? You know, if uh, the situation is many times when you offend someone and you want to go make peace, uh, many times people, this is especially the case back home, they will take an intercessor, someone who will, who will make peace, say, look, you know, he, he said this, maybe look, you know, but try and make the peace. And he pleads for you, he works for you. Christ is an intercessor for us on our behalf. In this limited dominion that Satan has, I want us to remember this fact that Christ is now in heaven interceding for us. He is more than able to answer the accusations of Satan. So don't listen to the accusations of the enemy. 
Don't let the whispers of Satan and the focus only be here on earth. We need to lift our eyes up and to remember Christ has regained the dominion. He now has regained the right of representation. And very soon he will regain the right of dominion down here. You see, Satan's dominion is limited now, but there is still a measure. That verse read in Corinthians where it says that, that Satan is the god of this world is actually written after the cross. So Satan has still some measure of dominion here, but he is limited from heaven. And this is where we need to set our affection on things in heaven. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 has been uh, the subject of Brother Turban's studies. And I love Romans chapter 8 because Romans chapter 8 has so much in it. Romans 8, it also talks about this particular aspect. Romans 8, verse 27. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the spirits, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You know, it was never God's will for the devil to come and cause all this havoc and all this accusation. It was contrary to God's will, but God recognized it. But now it is God's will that this new intercessor work for us and on our behalf. That's what he's doing right now. And I want to encourage you and remind you to consider him in that capacity because there is great power and authority in what he is doing for us and on our behalf. He makes intercession for us. And just as Satan was the accuser of the brethren day and night, the intercessor intercedes for us day and night. Praise God. Aren't you thankful for that? Jesus is doing that work for us, not only in heaven, but also in here, if we allow him. That's the condition, isn't that right? If, if we make Christ our Lord and Savior, if we submit and surrender to him, he does the very same work that he is doing in heaven, in here, because he is reclaiming dominion also right here. And he's reclaiming dominion so, not so that he can rule us, as a dictating ruler, but so that he can restore to us fully the freedom to rule ourselves under him. God is going to maintain a free choice universe after the plan of salvation. That's the whole genius of the plan of salvation. How can you redeem sinners and still maintain free choice? That was a dilemma that God had. And only God could solve them. Praise God, the answer was in Christ. So when Jesus is your savior, he stands interceding for you. He is your intercessor. Please make him your savior. The other option is not as good. Let's go down to verse 34. One of my favorite verses, verse 34. We're in the same chapter, Romans 8, 34. Who is he that condemneth? What's the answer? Okay, Paul answers there, but who is the one who condemns? Who is the accuser? It is, it is Satan. Now notice the answer to these accusations. It's not a, an argument. Notice what the answer is. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. That is the greatest answer you can give to all the accusations of Satan. Why does Paul go in this order? Why does he talk about the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ? Because that was how Christ regained that right to represent us. When he died on the cross with the devil having nothing in him, he broke the hold of Satan. 
When he went to heaven, he went as the new representative of earth. So Paul is essentially saying, when you feel under condemnation by the devil and you feel the accusations of the enemy, remember, Christ died, he is risen, he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. That's the answer you can give. And if you make him your savior, his intercession is on your behalf. So when the devil comes into your ear whispering his accusations, Yell in his ear this verse. He needs to be reminded. You know, I uh, think, uh, remember the story of Luther when he was uh, oppressed by the devil and he threw the ink, uh, the ink bottle at him. You, you know that? And you can go there in Germany and find the ink stain. Supposedly that's the one. I don't know if it is or not. But, uh, you know, he was opposing the devil. The greatest opposition we can give to the devil is right here. There is the power of that opposition. We can't fight him with him with our hands and, and, and fists, but we can have the mighty argument of what Christ has accomplished. You know, when we understand that, it's empowering. When we remember that, it's empowering. When we forget that, we spend too long falling down and don't get up as quick. So this is the emphasis of Christ being your intercessor. You know, the devil comes and accuses us when he trips us up. He trips us up, then he comes and accuses us that we tripped up and presents our case as hopeless. I've heard these whisperings. I know you all have. And then he likes to throw in all kinds of accusations in the process. He says, remember, you were a bad person. Look at your past. Don't you remember you did this and that and the other? And he lists a whole big list of accusations. And under the weight of that, it's really discouraging, isn't it? <coughs> it's really disheartening. And we think Jesus is pure and holy. Look how miserable sinner I am. You know, what, what would you want to, to do with me? And, and we try and fix up ourselves a little bit so that we might convince Christ that we're clean enough for him to accept. Or sometimes we feel that process is too much and we just feel down the whole time. And the devil is successful in his accusations. I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. The devil has no power over us except as we allow him and give him when we disbelieve these promises. You know, Christ gave us all this information. He revealed this information. He says, listen, I've won it back rightfully and legally. Use that. When the devil comes accusing you can yell in his ear that Christ died and risen is on the right hand of God making intercession for us. Keep your eyes on the Savior, on the intercessor. Don't heed the accusations of Satan because Christ redeems our past and he empowers us right now to walk in the Spirit. So to walk in the Spirit successfully, we must look up to where the intercessor is. You will meet accusations, you will meet trials, you will meet difficulties. You will fall if you're a just man. Up to seven times. Isn't that right? That will happen. You don't have to fall, but it does happen. So the, 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 the question is, what do you do when you're falling? Look to the intercessor. That's the answer that you can give when you are fallen. And that's why we're encouraged in, in 1 John. It says, my brethren, I write unto you that you do what? Sin? Not. Isn't that right? That means don't fall. I, I'm writing these things. God has given us in the gospel a plan to restore us completely. We no longer have to commit sin. But then he says, and if anyone sin in the unlikely event that sin does happen, what does he say? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the answer to all the accusations of Satan. I want to encourage you to look to the advocate. I just want to close with a story. Our time is up. I want to close with a story that brings all these principles, all these things we're talking about into one place. I really like this story. And that's the story of the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8. We'll close with this because, you know, sometimes we, we, 
it's good to see it in a, in a practical light. The story of the woman caught in adultery. She was brought by her accusers to Jesus. She was a sinner, right? She was caught in the act. That's what they said to Jesus. John chapter 8, the first few verses is where that story is. And it tells us there that the, the Pharisees and the Jews, they had this uh, trap set up for this poor woman. You know, and uh, the whole purpose of that was to test Christ. So they, they grabbed the woman and they bring her and say, Master, this woman was taking adultery in the very act. Moses said we should stone her. What do you say? And that woman really represents you and me. Isn't that right? And here's the accuser standing by her side saying, yes, sinner. All these accusers represent Satan. They were moved and motivated by that spirit. And Satan, he says here, is this miserable sinner. And your word says, sin equals death. What are you going to do? That's the, the case that Christ has. And in that story, we have an illustration of how Christ dealt with the whole human race. It's a beautiful story when you see it in that light. So in, uh, in answer, you know, Jesus begins to, to write on the ground. And we'll, we'll pick it up here in verse... In verse uh, let's read from verse 6. It says, and they said, uh, this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. It's the same uh, purpose of Satan, really, in accusing us. You know, us dying doesn't benefit Satan. His whole purpose is to use us to show that God is wrong, that God is inconsistent. To show that, you know, I'm a sinner, I sinned against you, put me out of heaven, how can you take them? That his whole purpose of using us is to his own benefit. Tempting him. Same situation. But Jesus stooped down <clears throat> and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. What a beautiful answer. You know, I love, I love the answers that Jesus gives his accusers. So of course, verse 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And as a result of that, we find in verse 9, they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. The first thing that Jesus does is he deals with the accusers. Isn't that right? He eliminates the accusers. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He eliminated the argument of the accusers. So that argument there is the cross. That's the answer. Eliminate the accuser. Problem number two now is to deal with the fact that this person is a sinner. Verse 10, And when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, just her and him, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? You see, many times the difficulty and hardship for us to come back to Christ is because of all these accusations. You know, the woman was probably sitting there, you know, shivering, uh, waiting to feel the first stone. She knew that's what would happen. She had no idea it would end up like that. She thought, that's it, I'm done for. And you know, sometimes we feel that way when we fall. We fall the end of, that's it, it's all over. Might as well chuck the whole thing in. Isn't that right? You feel like that sometimes. That's the work of the accuser of the brethren who accuses us here. So Christ eliminates that. He says, okay, woman, where are the accusers? She says, there's no one left. There's no, no accusers. 
then the beautiful thing here is she said, verse 11, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Hallelujah. Go and sin no more. That's what Christ says to us. He has every right to say that to you and me today. You know, if you're in your journey in the spirit, you stumble, you fall. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Get up and sin no more. What enabled Christ to say that? Because Christ was going to bear her sin on that cross. That's the answer that he gives. And of course, uh, that woman uh, would have heeded the call of Christ. You know, when we fall, I don't need to tell you the way back. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Isn't that right? You know, that doesn't run out. That, the, the Bible doesn't say you use this verse 20 times and that's it. It's not a coupon they use and then it runs out. As many times as you fall, if you confess, he is faithful and just to forgive. And not only that, but to cleanse from all unrighteousness. So I want to encourage you today, look to your advocate. He can take away your sin. He can take away your doubts. He can heal your backsliding. He can lift you up and say, go and sin no more. You know, some people don't believe that. But the one who promised accomplished that and says, go. And if you really believe, I in you will accomplish that fact. He wants us to believe that. And that's a beautiful promise that we have. So when we look to the intercessor, I want you to look at him in a fresh light that there is power there. There is a legal right that Christ has there and he has here. And he lifts us up and says, sin no more. So if you've been discouraged, I want to encourage you. Christ can heal your discouragement. If you've backslidden, you've wandered from the way, Christ can heal your backsliding. You've fallen, you've sinned, you've messed up and filled the temple with trash. Christ can cleanse the temple. He does not give up. Don't give up. Don't let the accuser win the battle in your mind in your heart. That's the thought I want to leave with you. Don't delay in coming to Christ when you wander from him. Last verse, Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. I really love this verse as well because it gives us a beautiful thing to look forward to. Daniel 7. Ezekiel Daniel chapter 7. And we will look at verse 27. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 27. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Full restoration of the dominion is coming very soon to the people of the saints of the, of the Most High. So what Adam has lost, the second Adam has more than regained. Use what he has regained in your experience. That's my challenge. That's the reminder I want to leave with you. Let's kneel as we close in prayer. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.